This episode is brought to you by Ravenheart Forge. I recently used a Ravenheart Forge buckler to prevent a strike from a messer that would have surely killed me. As it stands, I think I did more damage to the messer and the person holding it, because that's how good Ravenheart Forge bucklers are. Visit www.ravenheartforge.com. What's up everybody and welcome to this episode of Blades for Days where we're going to be talking about swords and sword fighting and people annoying us at workshops and murderous newbies. I'm your host Jordan and joining me today is the authority on the Italian master Filippo Vadi, Jamie McKeever. Hey Jordan, how you doing? Ah, I'm doing really well man. Good to see you. You too? It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. I was actually trying to figure out... Um, the other day, the last time I saw you, and I think it was Wessex League. In... Must have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure which one, but one of the Wessex Leagues in 2019, I imagine. Yeah, that was it. And then it and then it all sort of fell apart. <laughs> I, last, I last saw you in 2019, it's true, for almost every single one of my friends. So it's, yeah. It's yeah, I actually went to a tournament in 2020, um, which was Phelan Agashka, which I think I've talked about almost oh. every episode of this podcast, purely because it was the last one that I went to. I I love Phelan Agashka. It's, it's my favorite tournament. Really? Um, it's it's what it's well my favorite event. Yeah, it's it's one of the events that it's in my mind. It strikes the balance between most events are either tournaments or their classes or their sparring, and Phelan Agashka is the one which strikes the balance between all three. Um, yeah. And then, of course, Neil and Susie and all the Irish lot are amazing fun and great people. And, you know, the, the, the pub is excellent as well. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I missed failure because um, I've been, I think, three times. And I missed it that year because my sister-in-law was getting married the same weekend. Um, <laughs> so I was in Mexico at a wedding instead. Um, and, you know, it's a shame that I missed it. But, yeah, it was good. Yeah. Fun. Yeah, I thought. I mean, Mexico is not too bad, though. I don't. I'm not upset about being at a wedding. A wedding was great, and of course, uh, you know, Mexico is, is a wonderful place to be. Um, but you know, it would have been nice if Fader had been a week earlier. Than both yeah, years, so. yeah, I got you. I was actually, I was really worried that I was going to miss an event. Um, I, uh, that I was going to miss something. I can't remember what it was now uh, because of my cousin's wedding. And I mean, I, I'm not really big on weddings personally. Like I, you know, it, I like mine. I enjoyed mine well enough, you know, <laughs> but, um, but then they changed the date. So I was free to go to this event and I was like, ah, oh, no, oh, that's a shame that it's being postponed, but oh, well, um, yeah. I yeah, I think it was like around fight camp, um, which is coming up tentatively in August, this August. So yeah. Yeah, that, that reminds me that actually the first failure I, I wanted to go to, I couldn't because it clashed with my wedding. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd um, met Neil before that. I think at Astolat or something like that. Or Astolat? I don't know, something. And he was like, oh, you should come. I'm like, great, yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, and then the date came out. I was like, well, you're a bit busy then. So uh, that was also in, in Mexico. So, um, you know, yeah. two weddings in Mexico, missing a the gas. Neil needs to work better on the scheduling, clearly. <laughs> I just had a tournament at my wedding, so yeah, oh, nice. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I 
um, which uh, which I won, and then I had to deal with the accusations that it was a fix. So yeah, I was just thinking, mm, did you win? Or yeah, would be nice to you. Yeah, I think a lot yeah, of people might fun. have thrown that for me, to be honest. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, uh, fight camp is where you and I first met which was, yeah. I think it was the 2018 fight camp. Exactly. And I was talking to somebody about it recently, actually, because I said that, you know, I, ha I was going to have you on for an episode. And um, I was talking about how at the start of your workshop, you were like, okay, this is this is a Vardy workshop. This isn't Fiore. I don't want to hear anything about Fiore, okay? Just just this is Vardy, okay? No no fucking Fiore here, right? And about 10 minutes in, somebody puts their hand up and goes, "But in Fiore, we do this." And you like the look that you gave them, I was like laughing into my <laughs> sleeve because you were like, "What did I just say?" <laughs> I don't remember being that forceful, but also at the same time, it does sound like me. So I mean that so that class, the only other time I taught I had taught that before fight camp, I taught it at um well, I taught it at my class too, but the other event I taught it at was the Exiles uh 25th birthday event. And of course the Exiles are you know, that if you if you if you cut them if you can, then you'll see Fury right through to the bone. Yeah. Um and you know, probably you know, words will cut or the manuscript will come out instead of blood or something like that. I don't know. But you know, they are very very fury i think by constitution they have to be fury as well um so you know then i think in, i had that in my mind I, I suspect when i was teaching at fight camp because of course the fury comparisons were strong i think i was the only the only vardy guy in the village basically right yeah. you know like honestly it was me and a room full of furious because everyone there was exiles right i think there were a couple other people who weren't but they were probably also furious as well yeah. And yeah, so I think I was just you know a little bit um, covering the same things, um, and of course I do have a I do have a bit of a soapbox when it comes to body and fury comparisons. So yeah, yeah, because I mean I I find it because of the the this because of the similarities I do find it quite difficult sometimes to be like okay Frontale is like here on the left and then like. Uh, Vera Finestra, I think, is this oh, one. And, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's the the stances because the false edge of the blade is kind of facing forward. Uh, it's it's unlike anything else that I've ever seen, which makes it quite interesting. Mm. I remember kind of trying to use it in the tournament that weekend and just being like, "Nah, I'm getting cut up here." So, you, you know, because I did Fury before Vardy and. Um... I've had to do a few things recently to adapt my fencing because I have a, an arthritic shoulder. My right shoulder's got arthritis, which is which sucks. But um, you know, I've, uh, so that means I've had to change a few things. Vera Finestra right now for me is a struggle because that's the exact motion. So for those who can't hear or see, uh, Vera Finestra being uh, you know over the right shoulder, um, but kind of like an ox or Finestra but retracted. So it's the equivalent of possibly Donna from Vure, you know, an over the shoulder guard or Vontag from German. In Vardy, I can't do it anymore because the exact motion that it gives is the one that triggers the arthritis in my shoulder, and it hurts quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so I've had to revert to Fiore's Poston Donna and over the shoulder guard if I want to do a, a, over my right shoulder guard, which of course is a pretty standard guard to want to do. Um, but I thought about it for the left, and for some reason Frontal on the left doesn't doesn't do it, even though it's you know just the the mirror guard almost. 
doesn't trigger the shoulder in the same way. And I can't cut from left over the shoulder, like Posti Donna style anymore. I just can't do it. I've <laughs> just ingrained frontal so much into my muscle memory that if I try and do it from, you know, um, just to stand over the shoulder of the left shoulder guard, I just flail about like a moron. Um, and it's just weird. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely something, you know, you've got to be used to it. But, you know, kind of, um, you know, what you touched on there, uh, it's kind of why I really don't like Fiore Vardy comparisons too much. Because there are similarities, but some of them are superficial, right? So, like, you know, similarity between Posta Finestra and Posta Vera Finestra. Well, they've got the, kind of the same name, kind of, kind of similar. They're both over the right shoulder, but their use is very different. And, you know, cutting from them is very different. They feel very different. And, you know, I feel that most of the similarities with Fiore and Vardy are either trivial, and so you gain nothing by the comparison. Right, you know, because they're talking about the same thing, and there is there is a degree of overlap. People don't admit that. Um, so, but if they're so similar, there's no point comparing them because they're the same thing, um, and you gain nothing. Or they're misleading because the terms are very similar, um, but they're doing something completely different. You know, like they both have a, a guard called Posti Donna, and they're very different guards. Um, and you use them differently. They're you know, completely different role in the system. They just happen to share a name. Um, so, you know, it, it, this is why I think particularly in that, I was like, we're not comparing to Fiore because you just confuse yourself. Think yeah. This is like Fiore, but either you've added nothing by that comparison or you're now confused and you're trying something else entirely. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. And, um, you know, for me, it's it's the same with Mancellino and Morozzo, the you know those later things where you come across this you know these similar names, but it's just not helpful. Like you said, it's not helpful to try and compare them because they're they're just completely different, and it's it's pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, I disagree on that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, um, yeah, cool. Yeah, so so I actually find comparisons of Vardy to the Bolognese masters way more useful, right? And the thing is. And the reason why is that they elaborate on things that appear in Vardy, but he doesn't talk about. So with Fiore, you know, as I say, you know, the overlap is kind of irrelevant. But with Vardy, there's a bunch of stuff that he just he mentions or he talks about a little bit, but he doesn't elaborate on. Like Mezzotempo is a great example of this. He says, Mezzotempo, I'm paraphrasing, it's more pretty in Italian, but he basically says, Mezzotempo, it's great. You use it all the time. Can't explain it, it's too hard. Sorry, I can't write it down. You need to come learn with me and I'll teach you it. Yeah. Which is, you know, frustrating as somebody who doesn't have access to Vardy himself and you've only got access to this manuscript. Um, but then, you know, it's discussed in the Bolognese sources and in a, it's still a confusing thing because it's discussed in a few different ways and, you know, different authors don't fully agree. But it lets you start building a picture of, well, what might Vardy have meant with Mesotempo? You know, how are we going to build this into the system? Because they're adding something else, right? They're giving you more information than you have in Vardy, um, and you know, particularly with 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 that, uh, or some of the terms he just drops in and doesn't explain at all, like Stramazzoni. You know, unless you do a comparison, you've either got to just give up and say, "Well, I I, can't, I don't know, I'm going to guess," or you've got to compare it to something. And you know, the later sources can be helpful for that, as long as you're cautious, right? Because you know, you, you can't quite be as straightforward as say, "Ah, he uses this term over here, so that must be what." Vivaldi means, um, because as I say, Mezzotempo is a great one. There's like five different definitions of it, depending on who you read. Yeah. I, I think you said at the workshop, um, because I've got 
I've, I've got a copy of Guy Windsor's Veni Vadi Vici, and I've read it a little bit, um, but I've read so much since then that it's kind of like muddied the waters for me a bit. I'm like, is that, was that Vadi? Was that was that Monte? Who was that? So I think you said at the workshop that if you squint, Vadi is kind of more Renaissance than than medieval. So there's like a big time difference, isn't there, between Fiore and Vadi? They're not big. It's about 80 years, give or take. Yeah. Um, which which coincidentally is about the same time difference between Vardy and Marzo later on. So Vardy, oh, cool. Okay. You know, time wise is basically smack smack between the Bolognese and Fiore. You know, give or take a year or two, depending on the manuscripts. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that's right. What I said is right. I still believe that. <laughs> um, that you know, for, so Vardy's writing like 1480 to 1485, so dating isn't exact. Um, which is, you know, pretty much depending on where you pinpoint it, the cusp of the Renaissance, right? You know, the earliest date you can place for Renaissance is about 1450. Certainly by the time you get to 1500, you know, you were well into it, but because it wasn't exactly like, you know, one day they wake up and suddenly it's the Renaissance, right? Um, and you, you kind of see elements of that, you know, it's not, um, you know, what you see a lot more in a lot of the later texts, Morato is a bad example for this, but certainly things like Dalagokia and uh, Mantellino. You see a lot more discussion of sort of principles and you know reasoning and, and this kind of stuff, which you really don't see at all in Fiore, right? You know, Fiore is largely plays, right? It's, it's specific examples for you to copy in some way, shape, or form, and this kind of discursive discussion of you know, the nature of fencing and you know, the philosophy behind it, and you know, linking it to Aristotle and all this kind of stuff, it doesn't happen in Fiore. It becomes very commonplace in Renaissance, and Vardy kind of starts to do it, but he doesn't do it very well. And he kind of does it, but he does it in poetry. And, you know, so that's why I say it's kind of, you can see, kind of, you can see that transition. It's really interesting. You know, put fencing aside for a second. It's really interesting from a kind of a history of thought sort of thing, because this is, this is exactly what, you know, was going on in the Renaissance was this return to sort of classical theory and sort of rethinking how people were doing stuff in the medieval period with a classical lens on it and this kind of, you know, principled and philosophical approach to things. And, you know, Vardy is right in the center of that. Like, you know, the, the, the areas that were most renowned for this kind of uh, change were sort of Ferrara, Abino, Venice, you know, and, and other areas in, in that exact region of Italy, Bologna, of course. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not surprising that we see that, but it's still really nice to see it sort of transition. Yeah, I, I was talking to Mike Prendergast recently and we were talking about the you know different sources and how i i thought that i was quite indie when i started studying puree you know i'm like ah, nobody studies people you know um i'm studying pure and most people that i know were studying sort of meyer and the the uh, german uh the german stuff and like meyer's hot stuff now because everybody's found the start the new, yeah yeah the new manuscript so um and uh but you know, Pietro Monti and Vardy are almost more indie again, you know. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. Um, what, like, why do you think that is? Honestly, a lot of, it, a lot of this is uh, momentum, right? So, you know, because, for instance, just think about Fiore for a second. You, you know, you're right. That sort of, you think globally, it's probably, like, most people do Lichtenauer. Say Maya is probably second place. And you know, Fury is at best the distant third in terms of just in terms of longsword, right? 
Um, but if you think regionally, it's not the case. So London, actually, for instance, is mostly Fury. Uh, you know, you've got Exiles of Fury for Longshore Clubs. You've got Exiles of Fury. You've got Scholars Fury. We're half Fury, half Vardy. You know, the other, the other Longshore instructor was a Fury instructor uh, at LA2C. Um, New Cross is, is, is a bit weird that they, they do what they feel like. Um, you know, but, you know, T is not Fury, but he's, he's recently moved to London, right? So um, the only club doing a German system uh, is Dave Rawlings' uh, with the, the new mayor as well, which is, you know, a, a, a niche uh, German system from that perspective. Um, and there's basically no victim now apart from TQ um, in London. And the reason for that is that most of the clubs, with the exception of Dave Rawlings, ultimately you can trace the route back to the Exiles, which is a Fury club. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of like the trends that we have are nothing to do with the masters really. It's to do with which manuscripts became available first and then people started using them and then, you know, people moved away and they, they started up a new club because they're in a new place and, um, well, they, what do they teach? They teach the thing that they learned. Um, so, you know, it really is, I think in most cases, momentum and historical accident. Now then there's. There's a slight difference as well, which is that, of course, then there's the amount of material, historical material available. You know, we have way more Lichtenauer manuscripts, Lichtenauer glosses than, than anything else. We've got four copies of Fiore and they're relatively long and Vardy's relatively short, um, although I'd argue there's more in it than Fiore, but um, I'm, I'm biased, so <laughs> I'll admit that. Um, and, you know, that's probably an aspect of it as well. Um, but no, really, honestly, I, I really do strongly think that the main trends we see are basically just momentum. You know, some clubs have it, they split up, people keep teaching the same thing that they want. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I sort of study in my downtime are like Eastern martial arts and where they've come from and, you know, how you have these different karate schools that break into um you know they, they study different styles even though they're all kind of the same style but then you know globalization happens and you get people teaching things like uh karate online and especially with like you know coronavirus you've had a lot of people teaching classes online i know that like dave rawlings was teaching i think like five nights a week at one point yeah, um yeah, yeah. online and you know I, i'm just like i'm wondering how that's going to change the way people study HEMA um, and the way it's going to sort of appear, I don't know, like appear in the future. Because when you're, you know, when you're studying in a class, like if I've got somebody, you know, doing a cutting drill in class or they're doing an exercise, I can go over and, you know, help and make corrections and stuff. Yeah. But I suppose when, you, when you're doing it at home, you're going to sort of start taking your own kind of versions of these guards um that are going to be slightly different you know and and that's you know some of them are going to be less effective some of them may be more effective and i i think it's you know i think it's interesting how it's going to change things so we we I mean, we didn't do online classes i i honestly i i thought about it and i couldn't um i couldn't come up with a format i was happy with i, I basically i decided i didn't want to do a poor man's copy of you know an in-person class i would only do online stuff if i could find a good way to do it i did a bit i did a theory class for a while that was actually quite good and quite popular but i didn't do any sort of physical practical classes um i had no need because you know i'm not a, a, a don't teach humor professionally it's not my income 
and um, it just, as I said, couldn't come up with anything happy about it. But you've just started, you know, physical classes again. And this is what you say about the sort of small guard variations. We did, I've done a sparring session on Sunday and physical class yesterday. I had a lot of minor corrections for people, their guards, the things that people had got into, you know, in the gap, either because they haven't been training or because they've been just sparring with some friends. That, you know, I was going around and saying, no, actually, you're holding it slightly wrong. If you do it this way instead, it'll, it'll work better and this kind of stuff. And that's just in 15 months of people who are, you know, they're all my students. So they've, they've all learned from me. And, you know, for various reasons, we've, you know, four or five of them, it wasn't just one person. We've started to have these kind of divergences in a much short period of time. So I'm sure you're right that you know, without that kind of constant correction or not constant correction, you know, the sort of fixing the line of issues, We'll get different interpretations and yeah some of them will probably be better I, I fully admit that it my interpretation is an interpretation and i could be wrong i don't think i am but i could be um, <laughs> yeah i um i i may i tend to say that in class uh, a lot which is uh you know this is just this is my version of it I, you know i might be wrong don't think i am but you know <laughs> but i mean i wouldn't yeah. teach it if i thought i was so <laughs> Um, but no, it's like, you know, I had um, a friend of mine and a student, uh, George Jennings, and he's a doctor, teaches in the local university, Cardiff University, and he teaches martial arts um, studies. So the background of them, the sort of culture of them and, and how they kind of come together. And we were discussing like Bruce Lee um, as an axiomatic character. And, you know, you have these you have these people um, today who have these interpretations and it's it's weird how everybody you know everybody can thinks of bruce lee and everybody thinks of like yip man and you know stuff like that and that's like the core stuff and you want to get as close to that sort of stuff as possible but then if you had a book written by a student of Bruce Lee's, it probably wouldn't get as much heat as something by Bruce Lee, even though this yeah. guy who studied under Bruce Lee could have lived, you know, 50, 60 years, trained for, you know, uh, 40, uh, you know, for 40 years, developed what Bruce Lee was doing further, um, you know, tightened it up, made it, made it a little bit better. But then people will keep going back to Bruce Lee and go, no, I want to yeah. get as close to that as possible um well and there's also with that example that you know in some ways the student might be better at articulating it than you know the origin right so we i was talking about a hero person i won't mention the name uh yesterday with with one of my students and we were saying that you know that they're an excellent fencer really good top of their game completely terrible at explaining you know what they did you know what you were doing that made them do that and you know having any kind of articulation of sort of you know this is the principles that i applied and this is how to do it and this is how you should do it so i don't do that to you in future um and you know i, I mean i bruce lee from what i've seen from him discussion it isn't that example right he you know he seems to know very well what he's doing he's got yeah. a very good philosophy well had a very good philosophy behind it but you know in many ways the student who's had it explained to them and had to work through the things might be a better person to learn from because you know they're not necessarily this you know this talented person they've had to figure it out or at least you know articulate it in some way shape or form and you know do all their notes so you know it's uh, it's an odd i would be very happy to have one of the body students manuscripts i'd read it straight away <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
there's a lot in Vardy that I feel comfortable with. Uh, so one thing is just it's just as simple as you you've got a pommel that you're using to grip. You know, like a round pommel, you're gripping the pommel. Because I've gone to a lot of workshops where, you know, they've told me off for gripping the pommel of the sword. Um, and I'm like, well, I like it. You know, it makes, it makes me feel like I have good bind, like, you know, good control of the sword for binding and stuff like that. And so having things like that explicitly written down um, is quite nice. Uh, they, I, I, I've had like some pretty heated arguments. I don't care that much personally. Um, I just want to do it. I just that's how I like holding the sword. Uh, and yet, I, I get people getting really, really hot yeah. and heavy about it. It's funny. It comes from so you, you, it comes from uh, MS. So if they're German tradition, it comes from the MS three two two seven A, which as far as well where is the only place it's written down that you should do that. Although I think some of the images show it. And this is an explanation that basically says, yeah, yeah, you should hold, you know, both hands on, on the hilt, don't hold, hold the pommel. But then the explanation of why is this bullshit. It basically says, uh, so something like so the pommel swings behind you and gives power to your force. And it's just like this crappy medieval physics explanation for principle that doesn't make any sense. And, you know, people always skip that bit. They just say, oh, no, it says that. So we'll follow it. And they, they forget that, well, actually, the reasoning behind it is rubbish. Um, uh, but you know, I mean, I have I have a take on this, um, which is that you know, I mean, there are strengths and weaknesses of the two, and you know, largely speaking, if I'm going to oversimplify it, gripping the handle makes your initial cut better charged, and it makes it simple to get the edge alignment right um, for your first cut, and gripping the pommel makes it way easier to manipulate it once you're already extended, uh, and you know, do your second cut, and in Vardy, at least, you you have you know, Vardy has lots of these sequences of, of blows. Where the impression that you get is that you know they may or may not be landing, and he's you know talking about how to follow up. He's been parried and this kind of stuff. It's a very parry robust system in general. Um, and the Lignal tradition is very much about you know that one killer strike, you know, so-called master strokes or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, which one do you do? Well, if you're doing Lignal, yeah, it makes sense. Hold the handle, hold the the handle, because it supports what you're trying to achieve. Um, doing the same thing in Vardy, there's there's some things in Vardy that if you did that, you just wouldn't, not do it. You wouldn't have the range of motion required to do it. Um, and you know, I've tried, it doesn't work, basically. So, no, it's, it's definitely a swing roundabouts kind of thing. Yeah. I think as well, one of the things that you got to sort of take into account as well is kit. Because Absolutely, you know, yeah. what you were talking about earlier with your shoulder, I find that I can't take Poslapinestra mm -hmm. from Fiore. I, I just cannot take it on my right because I'm wearing so much kit. Yeah. Um, so I find it really, I find it really tricky. And a lot of the time when I'm in class, if I'm teaching something, if I'm teaching a technique, I'm like, this will work out of kit. But to yeah. get it to work in kit, you have to kind of do this and this, and like you know, got these workarounds. It's it's something I think we don't. As a community, consider enough, and I, I completely agree. Um, you know, we we do need to adapt the things in the manuscript because there are changes, and to an extent, we can you know try and adapt the kit, and we should try and adapt the kit to make it less less restrictive. I'm on a personal quest for that, um, but um, you know, if you can't, uh, not dying or not breaking your fingers is more important than being able to adopt Fenestra. 
so I've, you know, you just have to adapt your fencing to that. Uh, there's a similar similar garden in Vardy Sagittaria Archer, uh, which is kind of like Fiore's Finestra, but you sort of ex much more extended. It's got the same kind of issues in terms of adapting it. Um, and I used to be able when I had the Gaiadoni jacket, uh, challenge jacket, and some five finger gloves. I used really really light low profile arm guards uh, from Thark, which are these kind of like. Um, uh, it's not what's the word? It's not non-Newtonian because that's for liquids, but it's the equivalent for solids. I can't remember right now. Basically, the, the harder you hit it, the harder it gets. Um, and with all of that, I could get to Sagittaria, and it was great. Um, but as soon as you change one thing, if I'm wearing my spares jacket because my guy had only zippers broken, uh, or I've now had to go back to my spares heavies because those five finger gloves fell apart, um, then it's like that's gone again. Um, so I'm I've, I'm on a mission to find a new jacket to support this, and I'm hoping when the thought gloves arrive, the quest for Archer will uh, be succeeded. But we'll see, <laughs> that's the that should be a blog. The quest for the Archer guard. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, uh, I might, when I when I succeed, I might do a blog article on it. Yeah, yeah, you, you should because one of the things that i'm teaching at the moment is uh polax for this semester with my uh, students we're doing polax sort of stuff and it it kind of works quite well because when we're moving you know it, it's uh the manuscripts that i'm looking at obviously they're accommodating for the fact that you're going to be in, in um, yeah yeah and so yeah. um and i mean like furious stuff is pretty simple um it's a lot of the time it's it's wonderfully simple and he kind of says like yeah hit them three times in the head and if then they haven't gone down like go in and use a dagger um so uh i've just got to all i've got to do is stretch that out for four months um <laughs> but yeah it's it's really nice the only thing that i i noticed is because like I was fighting one of my uh, students and we were doing it quite light, which you have to do anyway, because, you know, Polax is just one of those, uh, one of those weapons. And I was using my spevies um, and he had some red dragons on. So we were going quite light at it. And he had so much sort of maneuverability and dexterity. And I thought, I really just want to chuck these things off and use it yeah. barehanded. I mean, I don't, but I do, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you think of the sort of gladiatoria images where they're in armor and they're wearing armor on everything except their hands. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking to uh, Mike Thomas and Nick Thomas about the pro gauntlets because yeah. the day they arrived, um, we were on Zoom and we were chatting about them and he was sort of like, you know, oh, look at this showing bit. This off. bit's all right. <laughs> yeah, showing them off kind of thing. Um, but they, I, I think uh, I watched a video of theirs recently. They like fell apart in the first 15 minutes of use, which is uh, a little bit unfortunate. Um, so I, I think the kind of the quest for more dexterous and yet protective gloves is probably, probably going to continue yeah. for a while. It will, it will do absolutely. Uh, you know, it was interesting that they they had that issue with the pro gauntlets. That was kind of my concern and the reason I ended up going with Thox over pro gauntlets, because you know all the all the exposed bungees and protect, protective bits. You know, I guess what's nice about that is it's obvious when something's broken. Um, but I was concerned about the durability of it. You know, from that perspective, because you know I've had too many things fly off my spare heavies, 
um, or seen your thumbs fly away from from sparring gloves and kind of things become about yeah the protective bits being so exposed. Uh, but then you know the thoughts haven't arrived, so you know gloves that break are probably better than no gloves at all. Um, we'll see when the thoughts get here whether I still say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's funny that like the the there's so much kind of emphasis at the moment on getting gloves, you know, getting gloves with dexterity. And the the thing that concerns me the most is the masks. Um, so one of the things that I'm I'm kind of worried about, probably because I just watch a lot of boxing and UFC sort of stuff, is just concussions and micro concussions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we there there doesn't seem to be like a push towards getting more I don't know, uh, like different different fencing masks, I guess, because the ones that we have are they're basically just fencing masks that have been toughened yeah. up a bit, you know. Yeah, the 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 Gaiadoni masks when they made them before Gaiadoni went bust um, were at least a little better for this because they had quite substantive padding. They had this air padding system, um, so that took a lot of the force out from from a blow in terms of it didn't go into your head and you know, just losing the padding rather than hitting your head. Uh, but you know, you're right that even even those were still um, fencing masks on steroids rather than you know, a fundamental redesign. I think the problem is that um concussions are a really subtle injury that most people doing hema don't really understand because most of us aren't really sports professionals in any way shape or form um i have i have had a um a concussion and it was exactly the kind of low um it wasn't from a single blow right it was from the kind of repeated probably a little too hard blows during training interestingly i wasn't using my guy don't mask i was using an all-star uh for that particular event um and it was it was horrible it lasted for uh, the the knock-on effects for no pun intended lasted for a good you know a few weeks to a month um really didn't like that don't don't recommend it don't get a concussion um but unlike you know when you know broken fingers or or even you know when a mask has failed or you know you you've you've pierced some clothing really hard to say well this is the one that did it because you know it's the sort of the repeated sub sub concussive blows as you described or you mentioned um sort of lead to it and as a result sort of the mask being at fault really isn't in the front of our mind when we look at it from that perspective so you know concussions are just an annoying an annoyingly hard risk they're one of those risks that people are bad about reasoning about you know Bit like coronavirus actually you know catching <laughs> coronavirus because it's not something that happens for a one-off event it happens from a sort of repeated event and you know the risks are you know one in a hundred kind of thing rather than uh you know, guaranteed it's not really something that scares people as much as it probably should um I, i'd welcome some some mask redesigns but the ones that we've seen i'm not convinced are particularly much better on on that you know things like the terrorism masks there's there's not like much extra suspension in them from what I've seen, and you know they're very very heavy. So okay, fine, that means they're harder to move with a sword, but they're also putting a hell of a lot of strain on your neck, especially if you had any kind of uh, you know sudden movements and kind of things. So it's been around about some those ones at least, and then there's nothing else really apart from fencing masks, padding. Yeah, no, I um I know what you mean. I've I've seen some of those like hefty masks, and they are they're basically like great helms. 
you know, um, yeah. that, that people are sticking on uh, their heads. And in all honesty, you know, because I did reenactment uh, before I did HEMA, and I've worn, you know, I've worn great helms and I've, I've sort of uh, done the whole fighting in a padded jacket and chainmail thing. And it's knackering, man, you know, because you, there, there's nowhere for your, like, even though the, the windless type stuff and the, you know, the other ones that I've seen, they do have that mesh instead. So I guess it wouldn't be as bad, but your breath doesn't go anywhere. It just sort of steams yeah. up in your face. And so you're, you're just cooking in this, you know, um, in this, this metal box that you've put your head into. So I guess one of the things there would just be overheating, you know? Yeah. Imagine. Which is already bad enough as you. Yeah, yeah. I watched. Um, I was in a tournament um, in Ireland, in Italy. Uh, I don't know when it was now. Before coronavirus, um, mm. before the dark times, um, and there was somebody, and it was so hot because obviously you know it was Mediterranean. It was the summerish time. I can't remember the date, the 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 month, but there was somebody fighting, and it was in the finals, and the um one of the people fencing just suddenly stopped turned on their heel and ran out the door and just started puking into the bushes um and they they were just you know it was just heat exhaustion it was just yeah it was bad um so i think that's yeah that's definitely like kit you know being in a heavy kit being having something heavy on your yeah. head um, I'm not not smart enough to solve this problem, unfortunately. It is well. <laughs> you know, I really enjoy tournaments. I really enjoy uh, sparring. I I sometimes, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting thing to experiment with. I mean, I again, you know, I might be wrong, but there's like a, a big emphasis in Fury and I think in Vardy as well on you know the bind and that sort of you know the art being in the crossing of the swords and stuff like that, and yet. Whenever I go to a tournament, I'm just denied the bind the whole time. So it's it's really interesting to find workarounds for that as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a hard one because uh, you know whatever you have in the book is needs to be a reaction to something. And you know, if the tournament that you're in or the local scene is doesn't have you know, those things in their repertoire or the culture, or whatever it happens to be. It's like, well, okay, what, what, what do I do now? I had this exact conversation, with, well, very similar conversation with one of my students, Amber, yesterday, where we were trying to, the, the exercise I gave them had a few restrictions on it in terms of the strikes they could do. And, you know, she was only, only had two strikes and her opponent for the drill was in a position. And it's like, well, none of these things work against that. I can only do these two things and I can't do anything against that. And it's a very similar kind of thing, you know, in terms of what you're describing that, um, sometimes you want to do something and it's just they're not giving it to you so you got to do something else i'm afraid it's annoying but there is yeah is that uh amber chester amber chester yeah that's right yeah i've um i fought amber actually at wessex league funnily enough and it was probably the best fight i had um because i found that a lot of people i was fighting were trying to overpower me with like overhow, overhow, overhow kind of thing, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I like I can play the I can play that game if you like." Um, whereas when I fought Amber, I had a really, really good fight with her. Uh, both when we fought in Wessex League and also in Ireland, we stepped outside to do some sparring, and um, yeah, she was really technical. It was really nice. Except I said to her, "Look, 
I literally had this tattoo yesterday. You can hit me anywhere, just don't hit me in the tattoo. Uh, and like the first thing she does is she puts in a thrust. My fault, to be fair. She puts in a thrust. I did like I displaced it, but I didn't displace it enough, and so the point just goes right into the tattoo. And I was like, oh. so yeah. I was like, yeah, that was definitely if you displaced it, it's definitely your fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I well, thought about turning off for you. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> So I was like, oh, come on. I said one, I've got this one place. So yeah, uh, but she put that in and that was, that, that was really good. Um, but I mean, you, you've been, uh, cause I spoke to John Middleton last, that was the last episode, I think I spoke to John Middleton um, and he was kind of largely involved in, in Wessex league. Um, and that's something that you've done a lot of judging for. You've been involved in Wessex league as well. Yeah. Yeah, so not quite as long as John. So I wasn't really involved in it. In the, I, I went to it as an attendee for the first year, but I wasn't involved in organising it at all uh, from that perspective. I didn't set it up. Um, and then, you know, um, but I'm basically good friends with every single person who ran it and who set it up. And for the second year, I thought, okay, it'll be great. we can get involved with the host clubs because, uh, you know, Wessex League has four sessions a year and there's a, there's a bit of a split between the the core committee and then every year four different clubs will host a leg of the leg of the league um so i did it as a host club um for the second year and then from the third year i've been on the committee and how many years has Wessex been running um i don't know uh I don't, i'm not sure if yeah tw- but anyway 2019 that year whether that was the third or the fourth i can't remember um Essentially, the original people had all decided that they, you know, they wanted to take a step back from it. Um, partly because they were running Albion as well, and you know, people had moved on and you know, other things in their lives going on. Um, so it was a bit of a transition year, but we kind of messed up the transition year because sort of it was one of those things where it wasn't quite clear who was supposed to be running some stuff and who was supposed to be leading on a few things because they'd kind of said it's the transition year, it's the new guys. And we'd all said, well, it's the transition year. They should be telling us what to do. Um, so it got to kind of really quite late in 2019. I think it must have been sort of you know, May. We, we'd managed to sort out the host clubs. We managed to sort out the venues. And sort of, you know, maybe even two months before the first one, I was just like, we haven't done any of these things. All right. Roll up my sleeves. Um, and ended up more or less doing all of the sort of the pre-work for for Exeter uh, on my own, which was you know, setting up the systems and doing the booking forms and allocating the judges. And I managed to wean it a little bit over the course of the year. So by the end of it, at least other people were doing things. But 2019 was an intense Wessex League for me because it was just, it's just like, because I did the first one, I knew what all the things were. So it kind of then fell to me for the second one. And the Wessex pace is a bit brutal as an organizer because you've got really you've got four weeks between each event and you've got to really as soon as even before you know, you're not even recovered from the event before you've got to do the next stuff the next one. Um, so yeah, that was a bit bit tiring. But then now, yeah, John and sort of Sasha and, and Fran have all stepped back. Um, and sort of it's me. Um, I'm going to forget somebody and get in trouble for this. But <laughs> me, uh, Nick Lang, uh, Joe Wimborne, uh, Amelia Skirment, Pedro San Miguel, and 
Bob. Thinking of the Rob's name. <laughs> I know Rob. who you mean. Raw. I'm forgetting as well. I'm blanking on it. Uh, I'm so I best not tell Rob to, uh, <laughs> to, to <laughs> look at this, to listen to this one. Uh, but Rob, Rob, yeah, you know, you know, Rob, everyone knows. Rob. Yeah, yeah, everybody uh, knows Rob. Rob. Yeah, but so we're kind of taking it over. So, um, you know, moving forward from that perspective. But then the pandemic hit, and managed to do one for 2020 for some reason. Um, I'm not going to blame that one on us. On us, I think uh, the world had other ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um... I mean, Wessex League is a really good one for for the fact that it isn't just a one-off, you know, that it does move around. And it's, you know, it's it's nice to sort of have a chat like this and kind of see, you know, see how the sausage gets made kind of thing, see the, the sort of work that's involved in it. Um, because it, it it is a lot, um, you know, I think yeah. a lot of people are maybe a little bit naive about how much work is involved. And I'd, I'd imagine as well that one of the hardest things is not being able to get involved um, in, in terms of the fighting, if you if you know what I mean. Because one of the things that I've chatted with Matt Easton about is, you know, when, when he's putting together fight camp and when he's putting together this and that, he he's got so many plates spinning he's got so many yeah. sort of things up in the air that he just can't actually take part in any of the workshops that you know he that he would really like to um and so that that's got to be quite tough right yeah well so thankfully i have been able to get involved in the tournaments in wessex although there's some i'm always a bit nervous about it and especially because i I do have a tendency to object when I disagree with the judges and Wessex allows you to do that. So, you know, it's fine. But last year, especially towards the end of it, I was starting to think, well, actually I'm the organizer I'm objecting and this is a fairly new judge and they're probably going to, you know, put a lot more weight on my objection than they should. Cause I'm right now, I'm a fighter. I'm not an organizer. Right. Um, but I tended to, you know, restrict myself to only two tournaments, even though I'd you know, love to do more, at least with Wessex, unlike sort of Matt with fight camp. You know, we, we always had a fairly chunky committee, right? Um, and, you know, we we always made it clear for the host clubs that, you know, they, they get to come and they're on the committee and they get a free ticket to a couple of tournaments, but they need to do a lot of volunteering, you know, to make up for it. Uh, and that meant that it was relatively easy to have sort of somebody on the floor um, and sort of, you know, pass that out because we weren't all doing the same tournaments. Which was nice. But the only way you can do that is if you've got all the admin work done ahead of time, right? And, and even then, yeah, Exeter, Exeter was the worst, right? Exeter was the worst for me in particular because I'd never done it before, really. And I was competing in two tournaments, um, and sort of still learning on the fly. And there were loads of issues that I didn't anticipate because I'd never done it before. Um, so, you know, the first tournament pool I went into I literally just set up all the computers and then one of them was wrong and I was in my kit trying to fix an issue on a system that I didn't really understand. Somebody else, while well, I was just saying, Jamie, where's Jamie? You're on peace now. It's like, yeah, wait, wait one second. And we went straight from that into a tournament match and my head was so not in the game, right? Yeah. You know, I hadn't warmed up. Uh, I was thinking about the software. I was thinking, is it going to break again? Um, oh, yeah, the Wi-Fi wasn't working, so we were hotspotting to my phone and... <laughs> No, there's just so many things going wrong that day. And it, the switching between 
organizer mode and competing mode is just it's really really hard um so yeah it only really worked in the later ones last year but 2019 sorry um because i was able to say okay look i'm competing a longsword which means when i'm competing a longsword i'm not doing any of this crap so you're in charge of that right you don't come and talk to me about it and because there was a big enough committee and by that point other people knew you know, what was going on um you know that worked um but yeah if you were on your own like you know matt he's not on his own he's people supporting him right but in terms of running it matt is running the show um and i can absolutely see that yeah he wouldn't be able to enjoy any of the bits to it uh, you know, in that regard yeah and i think because he's at the very least famous in the hema world <laughs> The problem is that everybody's going to come to him with their problems as opposed yeah. to like any of the marshals, you know? Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I remember chatting to Fran about it and she said, oh, yeah, people underestimate how much work Lucy does, like Lucy Easton, mm -hmm. Matt Easton's yeah. wife. Um, and uh, it it's funny because it's very similar with myself in the academy. Um, like Melissa, my wife, she her nickname among my students is the power behind the throne um and it's it's really true i've said to the students at the start I'm like look if you've got an admin question if you've got a question about like you know membership don't even come near me with it okay like i don't know i'd like I'd, i i don't know what it is you'll have to talk to melissa a lot a lot of people are so as well as wessex being run by committee lhfc london historical Fantasy club my club is run by committee a lot of people um, are kind of skeptical about that approach, but I, I, I really value it because it means that a lot of this is spread out, not, you know, not just on one person. And it can be risky because, you know, the issue I described before of people not being clear about whose responsibility is to deal with something. But as long as you've managed to sort of parcel out very specific roles and, you know, hopefully have sort of two or three people that can do it, it can be a much easier way of sort of spreading these things about. And, you know, not having one person doing all the admin and not getting to enjoy, you know, their event or their fencing tournament, whatever it happens to be. Um, and, you know, for, to my mind, you know, we, we started in a bit of a weird way. We were already a group before we sort of started a club. So that's kind of why we always had a committee. Um, most clubs don't start that way. They start with one guy, one person who's like, well, I really want to fence. So I, I must teach people to fence so I can fence them um and you know that then means that there's all the burden on you know one or two people's shoulders so uh, uh it sounds exhausting to me I'd, um I'd, I'd rather avoid it if i can yeah i mean it, it's good for me as i said i isn't a committee but it kind of I, I suppose an unofficial committee because melissa helps me out with most of the admin stuff and then i have um ben uh shout out to ben who runs the website um, because it was it was actually really funny how he put my website together for you know how he put the website for the academy together because I'd actually spent about a year making one um, and then uh, but it was huge like so if you clicked on it it took about twenty minutes for the the screen to come in properly you know and uh, I said to Ben because he's done website design and stuff I was like hey could you help me with this and he's like all right I'll help you out with it. He's like, but you're doing the work. I'll just show you what you got to do. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. He's like, all right, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but I'll help you out. 
later that day, he's like, he messages me. He's like, I built you a website. Let me know what you think. So it's just like, oh, thanks, man. So now I don't even like, I don't even touch the website. I go on it, yeah. but I'm like, I'm really afraid because he showed me how to, he showed me how to change things, but I'm terrified of like the cock up cascade where I'll just like, I've just got this little domino here. I'll put that yeah. there. Oh no, I've knocked it all down. And then be like, ben, I broke it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you help me? yeah um and i he's like i've told him because we go out for coffee and we'll chat about like the different things that we want to do going forward and you know same with melissa and and uh we sort of you know we have these chats um but it it's that thing of like i keep telling ben like you're way way more you know you're way too important to be hanging out with me because he's he basically runs this company uh from the shadows um but he yeah he also comes to the academy a lot and does a lot of sparring and then and and um uh does the website and i i barely i can barely run our instagram you know <laughs> so yeah it's i i think it is good having that support network um and I, the only downside of it is when you get caught short i think of judges because I remember my first yeah. judging experience, and it might have even been, it might have even been you who was fighting when I was judging for rapier, and I didn't know what the fuck was going on. But somebody said we need a judge, and I'm like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. And it's, it's fine, just call what you see. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I guess. And it was a rapier fight, and it was so fast. And they kept turning to me and going, "What do you see?" And I was like, "I didn't see anything." <laughs> rapier judging is 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 one of the worst uh like I mean, I mean the whole Wessex system for waste rape and judging is basically predicated on the fact that rape and judging is a pain in the ass um and yeah like, especially if you weren't expecting to i mean because the, there's normally judge training at Wessex league but even that we kind of focus on longsword and we, we really don't do rape enough in it I, I mentioned this to jonathan last time running it um but rapier is renowned it's quick you know and rapier and dagger in particular bodies get in the way right you know the, the dagger is in the way you don't have a clear angle most of the time um and it is it is a nightmare so you know these these days i'm reasonably good at judging rapier and dagger yeah because i've done it a lot um and you know it's head judging in, in rapier and dagger i would say about maybe maybe half of the exchanges maybe a bit more maybe two-thirds i probably find i can sort of I can call it and it will probably be accurate. But then the other third, it's like, it's not even like I'm nearly there. It's just like, I've got no clue. I need my judges, show me what you got. That's what you're saying. Fine, I'll take your word for it because I haven't got a clue. And it is very much, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a skill in its own right. And the problem we have with a lot of HEMA judging in general, actually, is that because we're using the other people who are at the event, the people who are judging are, you know, sort of guaranteed almost well almost guaranteed to be the people who don't train that weapon right because the people who train that weapon they're in the tournament they're fighting it um and it's not so bad for ones like well, like saber was the easiest thing to judge in the world it doesn't matter if you don't train it you can judge saber you can have never done a hero in your life you can probably judge saber um but uh particularly rapier and dagger when you've got a bunch of people who are used to longsword it's slow it's bigger the body gets in the way less you're kind of expecting things you chuck, chuck him in the way you're in the judging it's mean um so yeah i i, I understand your pain it's uh, it's definitely not you it's the system yeah 
Uh, it was it was just the not wanting to sort of get it wrong because there's that pressure on you isn't there of like come on it was obvious and i'm like oh was it i don't know <laughs> so um i was because one of the things that i was talking to john about uh last time was you know the way sort of traditional or olympic fencing has gone and it's become you know it's become electrified and all this sort of stuff and there there seems to be occasionally something that comes up on hema in pajamas or or you know some facebook forum where there's like a device that you you stick on your sword and it'll show you uh you know whether you made contact whether your edge alignment was on and i really don't want that personally i I I know judges are fallible. I know that that's, but I, I just kind of feel like once we do that, it's going to narrow, narrow what we do yeah. to, you know, the, the, the flesh. It's, it's funny. People have such different, um, one of the things that is most inconsistent between judging is hit quality. And this is not just in terms of like judges on a given day, but people's views on what constitutes a good or a bad hit vary greatly. And, you know, different tournament rules define it differently and, you know, different individuals do it. Um, and I think you're right that if we have a machine that says this, this is a good quarterly hit or this is a bad quarterly hit, suddenly we won't quite start thinking about these that way. And I'm not convinced that most people really understand what a good quarterly hit is, if I'm honest. Um, and I suspect that whoever would build a machine probably would be in the same boat. Um, because, you know, we're not hitting our friends with the sharps on a regular basis. So... How would we know if that would have been an effective hit or not? Um, and, you know, I mean, judging is very variable. Like, I've been to a lot of tournaments. Um, you know, obviously, I've been to a lot of Wessex, but uh, tournaments both in the UK and sort of across Europe. Uh, never done one outside of Europe yet. Um, but some tournaments have, you know, either fantastic or, you know, good judges and you know, they're, they're right most of the time sometimes they are abysmal and i feel like i'd probably cause some controversy by pointing some fingers um but i will so <laughs> swordfish judging is terrible it's, it's notorious for it um because they it, it's the same problem i described the people who are there they get into judge are the people who don't train the weapon and and they have this there's just so much noise in the judging system that they've got unlike so with with rapier in wessex you know, we narrow the focus to what the judges are looking at to, to block out the noise. Um, whereas they have four judges in, um, they're four, ju four line judges in, in Zordfish. They got two flags to indicate, uh, um, you know, what they think was hit on both fences. So they, they indicate, you know, hit the head for red, hit the hand for blue, whatever it happens to be. Um, and then they just put them up and there's no nuance to it. There's no discussion. So, you know, you've got to do that you know you're thinking about whether you got it right and you do it in a split second and then the other problem that they've got is that the the referee who's the most experienced person there and probably is the person who's most likely to know what's going on doesn't get a say so you've got the least experienced people confused thrown the deep end, trying to make a judging call and funnily enough it doesn't go very well um you know who could have predicted that um so i i think the best of hema judging I'm going to say this. I think Wessex has the best judging for any tournament I've been at. Um, because, because we've explicitly tried to grow judges, we show people what good judging is. We went judge training at every session. 
um, you know, with the way that, especially last year, I handled the volunteers, I built people up to judging. You know, I gave them the steps along the way, and because we've got the same people coming every time, I know this person can do this, or this person has judged this, and I'll put this in this role that's a stretch, right? Whereas Swordfish, no one knows anybody it's all international, so it's just a random crapshoot. Um, but, you know, the best of humor judging, you look at it and it's like, we don't need an electronic system. Coming back to my point after a big long rant, uh, because it's, you know, it's it's kind of 80%, 90% there. And at Wessex, we got the objection system where, you know, if you think it's wrong, you can object. Judges might not listen to you, but you're heard. And you know, between all of these things, it means that the judging is mostly right. And even when it's wrong, you don't come away with a picky bad taste in your mouth because you understand why it didn't go your way. Um, but when you see these really, really bad systems, the other one that was really terrible was actually the European Games at Minsk, which is also completely dismal for exactly the same reasons as Swordfish. Um, that's when people start thinking maybe we need an electronic system because you know the judges are only a little bit better than chance in terms of the amount of right, amount of their right about the calls that they make. And it makes you start thinking that it's necessary, but you know, better judge training is the answer. Training is part of the club, uh, training is part of the tournament. You know, this is, this is how we should go about it. And it, it works, right? It does work, uh, especially because we don't care about the split second difference, right? You know, in, in sport fencing, you need electronics because you don't, you're not judging whether someone got hit, you're judging whether someone got hit half a second before the other person got hit and yeah you can't do that by eye that's not going to work um, yeah. but if we ever go down that path then i'll no longer be doing hemo i'll be doing something else because <laughs> i won't be doing that myself yeah I, I and i mean i i agree with you in terms of if it sort of started doing that that's not what i want to do i mean i yeah. i studied martial arts growing up i wanted to get into a martial art a sword-based martial art um, and so for me, it's, you know, that, that side of things, the who won, who didn't, I almost, I, I've, I've said this before, but like I, when I, when I train, I'm not necessarily training to win. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm training to experiment with stuff. And sometimes that goes really bad. I was doing sword and buckler with, um, uh, with a friend of mine, Kian, and I went to try and get like a, an arm wrap on him as he was fully extended and as a result i took a buckler to the face um because <laughs> it didn't go it didn't go my way um speaking of concussions i don't think it, it was fine uh it was just me not really clearing the line properly before going in to to do the wrap but if it if it had been a case of i'm just going to try and focus on winning e each exchange then i'm just going to go for those like quick hand snipes and you know uh, and and just keep darting out sort of thing and i'm not really you know i'm not getting anything out of that i feel yeah. like it'll just you, you know my sense of um my 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 sense of enjoyment from it would just deteriorate over time because it would just be that quick draw thing so yeah, i feel like if it went down the electronic who hit who first or who hit who regardless of the after blow i think i you know i think i would definitely sort of just just continue doing what i'm doing right now exactly yeah you know? and see you later have fun you can go do that over there that's your idea of fun it's fine yeah do yeah help me yeah absolutely in, in fairness, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody HEMA really wants to go down that path, you know, to be fair. The electronic scoring, I think people want to, you know, they want to know it so they know who's been hit. I've never heard anyone suggest that we should adopt, you know, full-on epi fencing 
uh, split second timing. I'm not sure if it's FA or safe. I, I don't know my Olympic fencing rules well enough. Um, but um, but yeah, so you know, at least no one's suggesting that. But I do think I'm I'm not like inherently opposed to electronic scoring in some way, shape, or form to assist the judges. I think relying on it alone would be a mistake. And I think um, every way I can see somebody implementing it, I think is probably bad. So it's like, in principle, maybe, but show me what you want to do with it and, and then I'll make my decision. And I'm pretty skeptical that you'll be able to convince me that it's a good idea. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And, you know, it's, I was talking to um, my Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach because we were talking about um, judo versus uh, jiu-jitsu. And there was this thing where you're not allowed, I, I think it's a recent development. And don't necessarily quote me on this because this is what I've heard from him, which is what he's heard from somebody else and so on and so forth. So yeah, um, but we were we were basically doing shooting in for double leg takedowns. And then later on, we'd gone on to throws. Uh, and he was saying, yeah, so in judo, there's this particular throw and you, you have to do it like this because you can't go for the legs. You can't shoot in for a double leg takedown. And I was asking, like, oh, why is that? And he said, well, because um, basically a bunch of wrestlers came in to like a judo tournament and just took everybody out because they're way better at like taking the legs out. So rather than go, okay, we need to train to get better at like, you know, sprawling yeah. or defending ourselves. They said, all right, from now on, you have to be standing like, you know, fully up in order to throw. You can't go for the legs. And that's how you do judo tournaments. And I feel like every time you do that kind of thing, so, you know, if it were like electronic, I don't think it is either, personally. I keep I yeah. keep seeing people go, this is the future. And I'm like, nah, is it though? Um, yeah. You know, but like if I if we did start going down that route, yeah, we would just end up sort of now, like making our field more and more and more narrow. Yeah, um, absolutely. To the, to the point where it just it wouldn't be recognizable anymore. Um, yeah, no, Nintendo I, 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 suffers from that a little bit, I find. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't know a lot about Kendo, if I'm honest. So what, you know, what, I've, what little I know is that yeah, it's quite regimented in terms of you've got to call your strikes and stuff like that. But, um, and you know, only certain strikes count. So it does, does feel like it is kind of down that path. You know, I, I mean, I, I think a lot about rules and different ways of designing HEMA rules and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, for, for me, I think one of the fundamental things that a lot of tournament organizers get wrong is that your, your primary reason for restricting an action should just be safety, right? Um, and the, you know, safety is a very good reason to say we can't allow this. Things like arm bars, kicking people in the knee, you know, to, to snap it and that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, okay, we've, we've got to take that out because at the end of the day, we're not fighting life or death. We're fighting, and we want everybody to get home in one piece and you know have had fun. Um, but then, beyond that, when you start to sort of ban things or or do stuff, you're really just kind of forcing your own very particular conception of of the hobby onto. You know, we're, we're quite a diverse bunch. You know, Hema as a whole, uh, both in terms of the martial art and in terms of you know how we want to you know behave and this kind of stuff. Um, and is restricting actions because they're effective is kind of the same the same bag. Um, to an extent, you know, we, we do this with valuing scoring of one over the other to try and encourage one kind of action over the other, and that's kind of fine. Um, but um, you know, the, 
the sort of flat out restriction of you can't do a double takedown or whatever, double leg takedown or whatever it happens to be. You're really just saying we want to do exactly this and effectiveness is, is not the main thing that we care about, which is fine, I guess. But, you know, it, it is the more you do that, the more you have created a game to play rather than something to test a martial art, as it were. So. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, grappling is an example. I really enjoy grappling. And I think you and I have had a couple of sort of exchanges that ended in grappling or closer grappling, you know. Almost certainly if we fought, then yes. They, they yeah, would, yeah. So. And I love grappling. I, you know, I, uh, I think it's great, but I do appreciate that it is that thing of, as you say, if you go for an arm bar or if you, you know, if you, uh, if you sort of have a hip throw to the ground and then sort of put somebody in a triangle, then it's, <laughs> it's probably yeah. not going to go well um, with the kit. But I, yeah, I don't know how to, I don't want to limit it. Like I really, um, uh, one of the things that I do and a lot of my students have started doing is that I carry, um, I have a rondel on my belt mm -hmm. so that if we close and, you know, we end up sort of, we end up going for pommel strikes or whatever, and that's not quite working. Um, it, usually what, what happened was the initial reason for me getting the, the rondel was that I would grapple with somebody and I'd take control of their sword and I'd put my point in line with their face and not thrust them in the face because I didn't yeah, want to, be nice. like, yeah. yeah, I didn't want to hurt them or anything. And they would sort of like look at my sword for like a good right. moment and grab it. <laughs> And yeah. so I'd go, oh, okay, then drop my sword and pull the rondel and go, well, you are having that one then. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so a few of my students have started like carrying them as well. And it's fun to sort of like, you know, get close, drop the swords, go for that. But at the same time, it is one of those things where I'm like, you know, my, my guys know how to show that restraint. If it was against somebody I didn't know all that well, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I'm not sure how I would feel about it because obviously Rondals, they're, you know, they're anti-armor, you know? Exactly. So they're in armor, they're there to counter that. Yeah, and, and you yeah, know, this is the problem though. A lot of these things, like when we're, when we're talking about hitting each other with a sword, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, wide play kind of stuff, but all these things to make it safer than hitting someone with a real sword, like you know, the sword is the sword is blunt and it's lighter and the edges are thicker. Um, and then we've got all the padding and the protection, all this kind of stuff. An armbar is an armbar. You do an armbar, uh, you know, to somebody, you're doing it for real, right? And none of our protection really, none of our standard protection really helps from that. I suppose for some of the armbar stuff, some of the harder sort of arm protection helps a little bit. Uh, some of it doesn't, stuff like I wear wouldn't. Um, and, you know, apart from that, everything is just doing it for real on somebody. And, you know, they've, these are techniques that were written down uh, in a manuscript for hurting people. Um, so, you know, there's always going to be that problem of, well, we can't do the thing for real because we don't actually want to hurt each other. And, you know, in your club, right, with people that you trust, that you know and you know they can tap out and they know you know each other's strengths and you're expecting it you can you can kind of do that right if you've got the culture and you have you know you have a conversation about it i can't ever see us being able to do that in a tournament because it's maybe maybe if you did like an invitational tournament and you know you were only inviting people and you knew that they were trained and you knew this 
and you did some kind of sort of you know pre-event to warm people up and sort of set the condition you know a lot of stuff you'd have to go do a lot of work to do it but an open tournament where any hoo-ha can show up i wouldn't run it that'd be <laughs> that's for sure so. oh yeah neither would i and you know i've i've said to people that i've spoken to online because i put up um i put up a post on tiktok or or one of those bloody sites <laughs> and it was one of my students uh, from ages ago and they you know it's a proper wine i think it was their like their first class and they literally like touch the ground behind them with the tip of their sword in this proper like oh here comes the pain train you know and like you better get ready because here it's coming and the cut is just this massive arc that i could see coming from you know five miles away and i just sort of like ducked out of the way of it and it looks like it's a great little five second video um yeah. but i just had loads of people going like oh what you know th this person doesn't know what they're doing why would you do that and i'm like because they're new and like i you know it's fine i wouldn't put that person up against another new person yeah yeah you know um i'm i'm sort of fine to do that but uh yeah yeah it's 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 the whole white belt versus white belt thing i would i would happily have a black belt versus a white belt all day long um you know i'm using belts yeah sure yeah, yeah. Uh, you know some um uh sometimes that's that's not not the way to go but yeah i would i would happily have uh you know somebody who's been there for years fighting somebody who's new rather than have two newbies kind of um matching up against each other and going yeah okay i'm gonna do the chiave forte and just like pop your shoulder yeah. out of place because a lot of um you know a lot of people have come into hema and they haven't done anything prior uh, in terms of martial arts, and that's absolutely fine. But some of them do, don't even get the idea of tap, like shout tap if this is on, you know. Um, and uh, that that can be quite dangerous as well. Yeah, we 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 did have this issue actually because uh, we get people sparring quite early. We get people we try and get people sparring from about sort of four weeks in classes. So there are a lot of fast a lot of clubs do. Uh, and their first fire resistance always with me because you know I can I can match I can show them the pace these kind of stuff. But we did have an issue for a while that um, not for a while but for a short period where um, you're after they've passed the sparring test and after they're in the first sort of couple they start sparring with someone um, sort of closer to the level they'll have seen kind of me sparring with the other senior students and think oh that's you know that's what I'm trying to get to. They get faster and they get faster. They get faster. Of course, they're not controlled enough to do it at that level, um, and you know, likely to be causing themselves an injury. So, and the other person, but we, um, no one got injured. But there were a couple of sessions where, sort of, looking at them sparring and thinking, "You're not capable of sparring at this pace," and I had to sort of stop it and say, "No, no look, slow it down." And after that happened a couple of times we realized that no we need to make this a bit more of a this isn't just these two people we need to make it more of a culture uh you know, as far as you know, control this kind of fashion so we we introduced um well first of all when i introduced the spire i make it a lot clearer that they don't have to go at 100 percent you know, every time 110 percent. and second of all we introduced uh the practice that before they spar with somebody that you know they have to have a conversation about it about sort of what their both experience levels are, you know, what they want to do, what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with, 
um, if I've got any injuries, like a you know, brand new tattoos to avoid and that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, it's it's helped it so much because now it's kind of this sort of self-regulating system where you know, people are doing what they're comfortable with them to a, a large extent. Although I still, every time new people are aspiring, I'm watching with a, a careful yeah. eye and seeing because yeah, new people don't yet know appropriate level. Uh, well, they don't know what you know half speed is really because they, they've never they've never done full speed. So you know you need to keep an eye on them and take care. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think like intentionally losing as well to your opponent is is just such an alien thought. Because like now and again, I'll I'll say to people, do half half speed fifty percent. And you know they start out and they're like oh, okay okay, but then they'll see this yeah, strike coming into the head, and they you know and then they speed up and uh, yeah. and so I I start sparring with people and I'll like I'll throw a cut that's nowhere near you know nowhere near them kind of thing, but I'm like well I've committed to this, there's no way I'm going to get back in time, and then yeah. you know it's, I, I'll take that hit to the head to show them yeah it's fine you know yeah. um, losing is okay as long as you're kind of being honest about it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. um, because, you know, if we were so, like, if you, if you can change direction and cover that strike, you know, suddenly being able to do that speed, then that means that when you're fighting at a hundred percent, you need to be able to go at 200% speed to be able to sort of carry that blow. Um, but I think one of the most nerve wracking things for me is when I get new people sparring, I turned my back the other day and uh, a student of mine, he's not new, but he's newish, if you know what I mean. Uh, they got into kind of like a bit of a close, close thing. Their sword slipped from their grip a little bit. Anyway, he ended up in the murder stance, you know, and I turned my back for a second. He's reversed his sword. And uh, Ben, who I mentioned earlier, was like, yeah, uh, buddy, maybe, maybe don't do that. <laughs> and, uh, I, I turned around. I'm like, what did I miss? Like, I literally turned around for a second to put my gloves on. We have a policy. It's one of the first things that anybody that joins us is told is that if you hear the word halt, shout if you stop. And anybody, 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 including the newest person in the room, can shout halt if they see something coming up. And yeah, that's for exactly that kind of reason. Because you, know, you can't see everything. I don't know how big your hall is, but you know, if you've got two or three people sparring at the same time, two groups sparring at the same time, yeah. Unless you've got six eyes, you're not watching all of them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there needs to be, yeah, students need to help police each other as well. From that side. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. And it, it, it is. It's that, for me, it's like this heart pounding moment where I'm like, oh, God. What? Uh, and then and then you see him. And it is that speed up, you know, they speed up because they feel that they have to. And like, I yeah. recently just um, passed my driving test. And, you know, the first thing I did when I was out on the road with my instructor is I, I went to a roundabout and I just gunned it around this roundabout because I'm like, well, I gotta, you know, I gotta do this and shit, I've got to indicate and I've got, and, um, you know, he just said, let's do that again, but slow it down. You don't, you know, just slow it right down because yeah. it gives you time to think about what you need to do, to, you know, to check your rear view mirror, to check your, you know, your uh, blind yeah. spot to indicate all this sort of stuff. And, it, it you know people don't they want to hurry through it because they think that's what you need to do but you actually have way more time than you think so yeah um uh, i need to keep I, I might implement the whole hold thing because we do it but it's generally 
you know newer students don't i think they're maybe too nervous to do it yeah and and yeah they absolutely are and it's something i emphasize it and i re-emphasize it a lot i tell them this it's the first thing they hear and they, it's probably the thing they hear the most from me yeah um, apart from the fact that body's not pure but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no I, I don't tell my students that because they don't be pure who this could be um but uh but you know it, it needs constantly emphasizing because yeah if you get open to the problems you do it and it, it would have to be a this is everybody's responsibility you know uh we used to be our first um call was a primary school and i used that very effectively to scare people because i said you know there's a there's an after school club around the corner and one of those kids could come in here because they see a sword and run across and you know you've got to shout halt you know, otherwise that kid's are gonna die yeah um and it was nice from that perspective because it you know it's new people i think feel that they don't have the knowledge to say halt and that was a great way of sort of showing that no actually you do right you know these things are very obvious and you can see them and you know you should feel confident in, in saying it even if you're the newest person in the room so yeah yeah no that's a good one actually um i years ago when i was still doing reenactment i was fighting in a field with a bunch of friends of mine and we were literally, this field was huge. Um, and we had, we, we took up a little corner and it was far away from anything else. Um, and this, this woman decided to just walk between us, like while we were fighting. And then, you know, and she almost got clipped in the head and she turned to me and she went, careful. And I'm like, you, you have the whole field. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, you definitely will get people doing well, stuff. <laughs> Yeah, we we had that. We did a parks fire ages back. Now this was even before my character club formed, and exactly that happened. I mean, I mean, we I think we stopped the fight before it was an issue, but it was exactly that. They're two squaring up, and someone started walking between them. It's like, why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, all of these paths you can take, including the actual path through yeah. the park, and the one you thought was good was through the swordsman. Okay, I mean. Yeah. Self-preservation is not on their <laughs> skills. This has been great, man. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for asking me. It's been fun. No, it's been fantastic. So where can people find you online? Uh so a few places. Um obviously uh our club website is um easily named uh London Historical Fencing dot club uh for the website. So all of our classes are on there. Uh, from my perspective, um, I've got a YouTube channel, which is my name, Jamie McKeever, and I've got a blog, which is my name, jamiemckeever.wordpress.org. So Google my name and most of the stuff will come up, to be honest. So that's probably the best way of finding me. Oh. Uh, and then the Wessex League is wessexleague.org. You have to be a bit more careful with that one because there is a football league oh, no. uh, also called the Wessex League, which I know because... We keep getting tagged by Portsmouth Sport News for all the football matches, but I keep telling them, you got the wrong guy to a fencing league. Um, but yeah, it's so a westerdeague.org if you're interested in West League or our Facebook page as well. Yeah. There's also uh, Hema Back in Black, which I think you're an admin for, right? Hema Back in Black, which I'm an admin for, yeah. Uh, that That's a bit harder to find because it's a secret group. So if you want to join Hema Back in Black, find someone who's in Hema Back in Black and they can invite you. Uh, answer if you do that answer the questions right because if you don't answer the questions that you get asked uh, on on the, applying to join the group you won't get added to the group and I, 
that's a strong message because nobody answers the question. No, that's fair enough. I weirdly, I've like asked to join certain clubs in the past, and they've asked questions, and I'm like, I I'll put my phone down, or you know, I won't answer them for whatever reason. And weirdly, I get let in anyway. So I'm like, what was the point of that? Yeah, great. Our questions are pretty minimal. There, do you agree to the rules, basically? And uh, I can't remember what the second one is, but it's, it's, we're not asking for you know your bank details here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's are you going to be a dickhead when you come in our group? No. Yeah, yeah. Fine, right there. And uh, and what's your mother's maiden name? And the yeah, name yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat. Exactly. <laughs> uh, a few of those. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, for for flavour. Big shout out to my new friend Dylan Glover who got in touch with the podcast to tell me about the new group that he's set up in Australia. If you want to find out more about historical European martial arts, visit www.academyofsteel.com or shoot us over an email at info at academyofsteel.com. You can also find us on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, and the other one, TikTok, that one.